in today's very special edition of Trouble with the Snap, um, Colton and I will be looking at the major coaching change made here this past afternoon, or excuse me, this past morning here at Texas A&M, as well as a key injury that uh, happened to the Texas football team this past weekend. Um, I'll, I'll just give a quick disclaimer. This episode will be a little bit shorter than normal, but with all that being said, let's roll the intro. Nick Saban, and in 2003, the Tigers captured the BCS. Michigan State's Jalen Watts takes in and he scores on the last play of the game. Unbelievable! All right, everybody, welcome back to Trouble with the Snap. Uh, as always, I am Will, joined by my five-star colleague and absolute scholar down in the University of Texas at Austin, Mr. Colton Deutsch. Colton, how are we doing today, boss? We're doing pretty well. Always, uh, always happy to hop on the podcast and talk some ball. So I definitely do not mind doing an emergency podcast, and I'm sure you are pretty happy. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm pretty happy. Uh, as Colton was just saying, and I, I touched on this briefly in the intro. This is a bit of an emergency style podcast, considering the uh, the major news that has come out of college football today. Um, head coach of the Fighting Texas Aggies, Jimbo Fisher, has officially been fired, regardless of how much money he is still owed. Um, Clearly, up to this point in his tenure in year six, he's just not getting the job done. And even though he has the most lucrative contract buyout in the history of collegiate sports, uh, clearly uh, the higher ups here at AM were just fed up with what what he's doing and the direction he has the program headed in right now. So, um, at about eight or eight thirty this morning, Billy Lucci of Tex Ags broke the news that Jimbo Fisher has officially been fired. And since then, kind of all hell broke loose on Twitter, both good and bad. And um, yeah, pretty crazy day here in Aggieland. Yeah, so um, it was actually pretty funny. So I was in Fort Worth for the Longhorns game and wake up at about nine nine thirty to a text from Will. It was just on it was just on my kind of lock screen, so I couldn't really see the full context. But it just says like I can't believe he's gone or something. So in my head, I'm thinking something terrible happened that someone died or something, and then. I click on the text and it's that LeBron meme where he looks really happy. He's like, I can't believe this is like my life. I'm smiling through it all. And so then I checked Twitter. I saw that Jimbo was in fact out at AM and uh, it was pretty shocking, but definitely a pretty funny way to f- find that out in the morning. I apologize for that. Uh, that was completely ill-advised. But as um, I was explaining to Colton before we started recording just a moment ago, um, like Colton, I was also sleeping um, or just waking up when news first broke. So I was still like half awake, half asleep when I was scrolling through my phone and first came across this. <laughs> and as soon as I saw that uh, that tweet from Billy Lucci, um, I immediately texted Colton because I'm like, we have to talk about this. And as I was just saying a moment ago, I was half awake, half asleep. And I probably didn't convey the message as well as I probably should have. It's all good. At least it definitely got me up and awake early for my drive home. But yeah, pretty jarring news. And I, I had trouble with the snap on that text. I'm yeah, 
Well, I had trouble with this, that with my locks of the week that we'll get to in the next episode. But yeah, this this was definitely pretty pretty jarring news. And credit to Will, um, last or before our last episode, we were kind of discussing what we wanted to talk about after doing our preview. And Will kind of said, hey, why don't we talk about the Jimbo Fisher AM situation? And at first, I kind of was pushing against it because – I was like, well, I mean, we talked about this after the Tennessee game, and we talked about it probably a week or two ago. I don't really see anything changing. And Will kind of brought it to my attention that there was a Board of Regents meeting called, and he kind of thought that there was, you know, potentially more smoke out there and that something could definitely happen. So, so you know, credit to Will for having his sources and, you know, kind of being down there on the ground. I'm on my game. Boots, boots were certainly on the ground. Um, and I got my people. So shout out to my people, my, my inside sources, as we like to call them. Um, they didn't lead me astray this time. So uh, yeah. I, I appreciate it. Making me look good. Well, so, well, I mean, what was your, I know you're kind of just waking up, but what are your kind of initial thoughts or musings from the shocking news? I mean, I know we talked in the last episode about how I think we both knew it was a matter of time, but I, I think we were both of the opinion that this would probably happen next season. So Absolutely. I guess, kind of, what are your initial thoughts? So initially when I first heard it as you, the perfect way as you just described it a moment ago was just pure shock. Um, I, I didn't really believe it at first. Um, cause you know, with social media, Twitter, things like that, rumors get spread around so quickly, so easily. Um, and especially when it comes to certain subjects like pertaining the status of Texas A&M's head football coach with that, you know, mammoth of a contract deal. Um, I don't know. Ne- I would necessarily, tread kind of lightly when it comes to reading about reports like that, especially if there were rumors, um, as like I was just saying, but clearly there wasn't rumors. And especially with the initial tweet being broken by Billy Lucci of Tex Ags, who is one of the most trusted AM football guys, he's AM sports guys in general in the business. Um, anyways, I, I was just completely shocked. And at the same time, I'm sure like a lot of Aggies, I, I felt relieved if that makes sense. Um, I felt like there was this like this weight that had been lifted off my chest a little bit in that sense. Um, because, you know, when Jimbo Fisher first got here, and I believe it was like December of 2017 is when he had his introductory pre- press conference here. Um, you know, I, I, like every single other Aggie, was just elated and was just so excited um, that he was here because up to that point, he was a proven winner. Like the track record was there. He had the national title from 2013. And after that title and after Jameis Winston left Florida State, he constantly had Florida State um, competing for playoff spots, for conference championships, um, things like that. And so seeing that track record that he had and having him finally show up at College Station, I was like, wow, now now it's, it's finally time. Um, and clearly the first, I would say, I believe his first three seasons here were unfortunately his most successful um, out of his six-year tenure, I mean, you know, I remember the f- the first game too that I remember where it really felt like the tone shifted with a new coach was probably that week two of his first season when we welcomed Clemson here uh, to College Station in Kyle Field. Uh, we lost that game twenty-eight twenty-six on a pretty questionable touchback call, if anyone remembers that. Um, but I remember leaving the stadium with my family after that game, thinking like, "Wow, like we finally have the right guy." And I thought from there it was only up and um, it was up for a little bit, you know, um, 
his first three years in college station, you know, we made three bowl games. We went three and zero in those bowls. Um, and you know, he capped off his, the highlight of his career came in that shortened 2020 season, um, with AM bringing home the orange bowl. But, um, you know, after that orange bowl, kind of like what I was explaining just a moment ago, like I, it was just only up and up from there in my eyes. Um, it's only been down and down since that orange bowl. And that was the exact opposite thing of what I, what I thought I was going to see going forward, but it's just how it played out. Um, so anyways, ultimately I, I feel like I just got sidetracked there. So I apologize, but, um, going back to your ultimate question, my initial reaction this morning, um, explaining what I just told you and all that. Um, I, I was immediately shocked and I, at the same time was relieved. Cause as I was just saying, I felt like I certainly had a bit of a weight lifted off my chest. Yeah, I definitely – I was kind of the same way when Texas fired Tom Herman that whole last year. I was just totally out on it, and it definitely is nice to have some new hope. What uh, Are there any initial candidates that you've seen thrown around or guys that you really want to see A&M look into? And I guess adding on to that, what type of, I guess, scheme or I guess like what type of coach and kind of like what their specialty is, like are you really looking at? So uh, there have certainly been names thrown around. Um, that I've seen on, on Twitter, text things like that. Um, the most notable one that I'm sure you've probably seen in a lot of college football is seen from AM Twitter today is Dan Lanning, the head coach of the Oregon Ducks this year. Um, considering what uh, Dan Lanning has done with those Ducks this season, um, you know, you have that one close raw, one close loss to a top five Washington team on the road. And that's the only blemish on your resume up to this point. That's that truly just speaks for itself. That's incredibly impressive. Um, so his name's certainly been thrown around. Uh, you know, another big or not big name, but another name that's been uh, thrown out there as well as Jeff Trailer, the head coach of UTSA. Um, what Jeff Trailer's done at UTSA these past few seasons, the pretty major success that they've had um, in the group of five is you know undeniable, and it's been really impressive. So it makes sense why he would be another candidate for the AM job. Um, and you know, of course, uh, you have some like realistic hires that would be thrown out there and there's some other ones that are just kind of hypothetical more like pipe dream kind of hires you know people like uh lane kiffin like lane kiffin from Ole miss or uh kaylin DeBoer from washington um I've, I've seen those names thrown around a couple times but uh, realistically speaking i don't think there's any possible way that those guys would come to college station no matter how enticing this job might be um especially Lane Kiffin, I surely think hell would have to personally freeze over in order for him to get down here and coach this football team. But, um, yeah, there's no way Lane would do that. No, it would be, or funny. that would be, it would be funny. Very, as hell. That'd be a very awkward introductory press conference. Uh, to say the least. Yes. But, um, I, I'm just, I'm just saying it because I, I've, I've seen his name pop up in at least like two to three articles I've read today. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm not, I would not be in favor of that hiring probably because of the whole previous track record these past few years that he's had button heads with Jimbo and AM in general. So I'm not the biggest fan, but um, anyways, that, I mean, those are just some, like some of the names. Oh, I, I apologize. I didn't even mention Mike Elko, um, the former defensive coordinator here at AM, who came on from Notre Dame. He's now the head coach of Duke. Um, as we've seen with Duke up to this point, you know, they, they started out really well. And pretty much after the Notre Dame game and their star quarterback, Riley Leonard went down with that lower leg injury or that lower body injury. Um, I feel like that one injury sustained by their starting quarterback really just kind of just, you know, knocked the wheels off. If that makes sense. Or the wheels just fell off after that. And so it's just kind of been really up and down since then. 
Um, so if Mike Elko were to be the guy coming to AM, you know, I, I certainly I would like to hire. I certainly would. But um, it's just I guess it's just not one of those hires that would just truly excite me, you know, if that makes sense. Um, so I think uh, c- kind of piggybacking that um, into the next question he asked me, what I personally would be looking for if I were responsible for making this choice. Um, the main thing I would be looking for is, at least in my opinion, I would think uh, someone who was a more offensive focused head coach would be the right guy. Um, you know, cause that's been, that's kind of been the thing with AM, aside from the Johnny Manziel years, of course, cause that's when he had just a generational talent on campus. Um, AM's mainly been a defensive, a defensive focused program. And you in that, that still checks out going back all the way to probably the 1980s. Um, you know, you, you think back and you think back to the, um, like the, like the night, the teams in the nineties and the late eighties, their defenses were just stacked. And that's actually when, um, the the AM wrecking crew defense that whole kind of moniker was born just because of how stout they were and then you get to the early 2010s you know it's it's early 2000s to mid to late 2000s things like that you have dennis franchione here or franchione excuse me um and everything just kind of went backwards there there's nothing really good about those years um and then you know kevin someone comes in uh, a little bit, a little bit farther along down the line, and uh, well, I, I apologize, I forgot to mention Mike Sherman, but it was, it was just a little bit better than what Fran did, but nothing too of note. And then you know, Kevin Sullivan comes in after Sherman, and um, I, I feel like he just kind of lucked into a generational quarterback, similar to what happened to Jimbo Fisher at Florida State in 2013 with Jameis Winston. Um, I, I feel like when you have such a such an incredible athlete like that on your roster who's able to win you know that many games for you or keep you in keep you in just really tight games no matter who the opponent is um you know with with guys like that they're able to cover up a ton of the glaring flaws of the head coaches who run the program for that time being just because everyone's so enamored with the play of these athletes um and so that was kind of the case with Kevin Sumlin you know, with uh, with Johnny Manziel, uh, you know, AM's first year in the SEC, they go 11 and 2. And, um, you know, they won the Cotton Bowl over Oklahoma. Uh, it was like 41 13, something like that. And, you know, uh, once once that game happened, everyone's like, oh my gosh, like AM, like they look so good, things like that. Kevin Sumlin's one of the best coaches in the country, just all of that. And then it's literally as soon as Johnny Manziel left, it was just an absolute roller coaster of emotions. Um, just because, as I was saying a moment ago, Kevin Sumlin at best was probably an, an average to just slightly above average coach. But when you have such a generational talent like that, the, all the flaws that make you that average to just above average coach are completely covered up because everyone's so enamored with that star athlete. And so that was a similar case to what happened with Jimbo Fisher, I feel like here. Um, you know, exact same thing, uh, except he was at Florida State and it didn't happen at AM for him. Um, with Jameis Winston in 2013, obviously they, they go all the way, win the BCS title over Auburn. Um, and everyone since then um, has just, uh, up to that point, had just been applauding Jimbo for being an incredible coach. Uh, he's running an absolute star-studded program down in Florida State. They have nothing but success with him at the helm, things like that. Um, and clearly, as soon as he leaves that job and goes to, goes to A&M in 2017 um, and tries to rebuild our program to his liking, clearly – um, his, his, um, his coaching was, uh, certainly on display 
with him, I, I guess pretty much what I'm just trying to say is same thing that happened with Kevin Sumlin towards the middle of the end of his tenure at AM happened with Jimbo Fisher here at AM as well. Um, those glaring flaws that were just covered up by star-studded athletes like that finally came out and finally came to light here. Um, but anyways, kind of going back to your question, what I would be looking for, I would certainly be looking for a more offensive-minded coach, in my opinion. And I would also, you know, unlike the the past few hires AM has had, um, I would look for someone, you know, who's young and up and coming. Um because, you know, some of the younger coaches in college football, you mainly look at someone like Lincoln Riley. I mean, he's like, what, 30-plus years younger than, like, Nick Saban? Like, I mean, two completely different coaches and different styles of football, but at the same time, they both have um, a ton of success on their on their resumes. I mean, obviously, no one will ever touch the resume of Nick Saban. But, um, you know, when Lincoln Riley first took over the job for Mark Stoops at Oklahoma, everyone was like, oh, kind of this young, up-and-coming guy. Uh, we'll just see what he's got. And clearly, he was able to get Oklahoma to the playoffs uh, multiple times in his time there. And, you know, as soon as he left that job for USC, um, he, of course, brought Caleb Williams with him, who's a bit of a generational quarterback as well. But um, as soon as he went to USC, you know, he had them competing for conference titles and uh, potential playoff spots, things like that. So clearly he's a damn good coach. And as I was saying, he's like 30 plus years younger than people like Nick Saban and other guys like that. So ultimately what I would be looking for is what I just said, um, an offensive minded coach and someone who's certainly young and upcoming and someone who's hungry to prove themselves and just go out and win football games. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think if I was an AM fan, I'd be feeling the same way, especially with kind of how outdated that Jimbo Fisher offense looked for almost the entirety of his tenure there, at least after the 2020 season. Um, one thing I was curious about with, I guess, what kind of impact do you think that one, this new era of college football coming up with the 12 team playoff and now with conference realignment, do you think that? the success this year of Texas and Oklahoma being at nine and one and eight and two, and, and now coming in to be two of your main rivals. Do you think that that had any sort of, any sort of impact on the timing of this decision? So I can certainly see, um, certainly see that side of the story. No question. Um, do I think it played an impact? If it did at all, it, it was, it was probably incredibly minimal, in my opinion. I'm not saying that is, is disrespect to Texas or Oklahoma by any means at all. Um, I just think that, you know, the past few seasons at AM, um, with what Jimbo had done with the type of rosters and talent that he had on this team, um, I, I don't necessarily think that the success of Texas and Oklahoma were like major contributing factors, but I'm sure it was probably in the back of the minds of someone like Ross Bjork just a little bit. I mean, it's kind of hard to ignore that, especially when that's going on in virtually your own backyard. Um, but no, I think this ultimately boiled down to just how Jimbo was able to do so little with so much. Yeah. And like we were saying, it was, it was becoming pretty clear that it was never really going to happen there. So credit to AM for making that commitment. I really didn't think that, that it was going to happen this year, but definitely I think you'll be more excited um, to talk some more football probably for the rest of the year. And yeah, definitely, sure. definitely at the start of next season, I guess for me, I, uh, 
because you mentioned Kalen DeBoer, uh, how you don't think it's that realistic. I've I've seen some kind of rumblings that he's that he's kind of in some NFL circles, mm-hmm. and so I guess that would kind of add up. Dan Lanning, I do think, would be a great hire. I mean, he has Oregon playing some pretty solid defense, and obviously their offense is still doing really well. And uh, the one thing, Will and I kind of briefly discussed it, I do wonder if maybe in a normal situation where a Pac-12 coach would leave to go to an SEC school with a lot of resources in the past, now that you have teams like Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA going to the Big Ten, I wonder what kind of impact that will have on their decision-making if offered a opportunity at the job, if they kind of just are saying, Hey, you know what? A&M's a great job, but we have a good thing going up here and we're now in one of the two super conferences. So we have a good thing going on. So that's just one thing that I'm curious to uh, see if that is a factor in any of these decisions. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think if I was an A&M guy, I would be looking at Dan Lanning. Uh, I do like Jeff Trailer a lot. I think it's, it's obviously a risk anytime you go from a group of five school up to not just a power five school, but a big time SEC program. Um, you know, but the thing with trailers, I, I, I think he has a lot of hireable traits. I mean, I think, I mean, like one, obviously being in the state of Texas, he has a lot of ties there being a former high school coach and he was an assistant at Texas for a while. And then now has had a lot of success at UTSA. And I think one thing that is obviously really important is because even more than who than who the head man is, is what kind of staff is, is he, is he going to bring in? And I mean, trailers had, I mean, multiple coaches so far, UTSA assistants that have found their way up the ranks, particularly the most recent one, Will Stein, who's now the offensive coordinator at, at Oregon. So I think that's definitely kind of a feather in Jeff Trailer's cap there. And I mean, the guy simply wins. I mean, UTSA, we haven't really talked about him as much because I think we were pretty high on them before the season. And then they kind of got off to a rough start, but they're right there in position to potentially uh, win the American. We'll get to that in uh, episodes later this week. But yeah, I mean, and obviously you have Michael who kind of has familiar familiarity there with the program and you know that he's going to play some good defense. So I definitely think that there's some good options out there. And you know that A&M, has the ability to get a pretty big time hire. I'm just always interested to see. I mean, I think a lot of times people talk about, oh, we're going to fire the coach, but it's who do you get, right? Because there's not that many coaches, you know what I mean? And a lot of coaches are kind of set in their spots. So definitely think that A&M is going to probably make a pretty good hire and interested to see how it plays out. I'm sure there'll be a lot of rumors kind of flying around in the next few weeks. The thing that uh, I was talking to you about this uh, before we started recording just a moment ago, um, I will completely take off my Ann and bias cap for a moment, or I will try my absolute best to. Um, the thing with AM here is given the resources of this, of this school, given, you know, the crazy amount of big time money donors that you have here, um, given the facilities of this school, given the roster or not, excuse me, given the talent, uh, the talent pool of high school players and recruits just literally virtually all around you in this state um, with all these factors coming into play, it, it truly is a bit of a head scratcher up to this point. Why AM has not had more success than they've probably had these past 20 to 30 so seasons. Um, and I, I, I say that mainly because, um, you know, as I was just saying there, I'm sure there, there have been a ton of talking heads in national media who've already covered this, but the the resources to have success in col- at the level of college football, they're they're here in College Station or um, 
you know, it, it's 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 pretty much everything that a, a head coach could most likely want, um, and and a job offering. AM can offer that, you know, as I was just saying between, you know, facilities and big time donors and an absolutely passionate fan base. I mean, a prime example of our fan base was uh, yesterday's game against Mississippi State. It was a battle of just the most average teams possible up to this point this season. And Kyle Field still drew over 103,000 people. Um, so clearly with the fan base like that um, and the student body and things like that, all that, um, we are we are hungry for good football and we are we're dying for we're dying for a damn good coach and we are dying for our athletic department to finally make the correct hire because i feel like the problem with AM up to this point is that you know we've made good hires when it comes to head coaches uh but we haven't made great hires you know um we thought that the good hires we were ultimately making would turn out to be these great hires that we were hoping for, but they clearly have not. And so what it all boils down to for me now is this go around now and the head coaching search, head coaching search. Um, I'm just, I'm really hoping that our athletic department and our AD and, you know, whoever is involved in the head coaching process like this, um, the hiring process, I'm, I'm really hoping that they, you know, completely do their homework and um, just do as much research as possible and make sure that when it, when they ultimately have a candidate in mind, that it truly will be the right person for the job. Because if you get the hire correct this time around, it'll be just incredible, at least in my opinion, just the type of success that they will have the potential to have here. Um, and so I, I'm just, as an AM fan, I, I'm just hoping that they truly do not screw this up. And I hope that they truly get the right guy this time around. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely, uh, I think you and I both had a lot of experiences with coaching searches. And uh, while it's definitely unfortunate to have them happen as often as, as often as our schools do, it always is a bit fun to kind of surf the message boards and see all the possibilities. So like I, uh, like I said, I'm sure AM is going to make a good hire. I'm just really curious to see who that is going to be because I don't know that, that there's anyone super obvious that you know is very, very attainable, but there's obviously still – I mean, I think Jeff Trailer is definitely attainable. Mike Elko probably definitely is. I think you're looking at um, kind of maybe the guys like Dan Lanning and Kalen DeBoer and seeing if, if those are guys that you, that you could possibly uh, lure away. Yeah. Well, the thing with someone like Dan Lanning um... – you know, everyone likes to say that AM has like these big time oil money boosters and like oil money just runs deep here in Texas, which absolutely it does. No questions asked. Like both AM and Texas, um, certainly they, they got more money than they know what to do with. Uh, but the thing with someone like Dan Lanning, I, I didn't really, I mean, it, it totally makes sense, but I didn't necessarily think about this initially. Um, you know, AM supposedly has like, like, a, like um, several big time boosters like this. Um, but when you look at Oregon, like who, who's their one big booster, you know, it's, it's Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike. Um, and that dude clearly has more money than he knows, knows what to do with as well. So I'm sure if someone like uncle Phil up in Oregon really wants to make sure that Dan Lanning stays in Eugene, he will probably make that happen. If that makes sense. Yeah. And Oregon has had what two, their two last coaches were picked off by other programs and those weren't really for money purposes willie tiger and mario Cristobal went to their dream jobs but i think they're there i mean i think if oregon loses him it's probably not because of money yeah 
Um, I mean, this is certainly the most amount of success that Oregon has had since, you know, the Chip Kelly, Marcus Mariota type of days. And um, obviously, since they've had success like that within the past 10, 10 or so years, um, you know, they're not the, – the fan base in Oregon is certainly not going to want to let go of a great coach that Dan Lanning may be, you know. They're going to want to try to hold on to him for as long as possible and ride this out for as long as possible. Yeah, and as they should. I mean, he's done a great job there. Absolutely. Um, okay, I think that's probably enough Jimbo Fisher talk. Uh, another talking point that we uh, would like to touch on real quick in our emergency press conference is Texas star running back Jonathan Brooks went down. Unfortunately, it was discovered today that he went down with a torn ACL. Um, Colton, I had, I certainly had my tangent, my, my little talking points there about Jimbo. So the floor is absolutely all yours when it comes to Jonathan Brooks. Um, take it, lead us, lead us off. Yeah, I mean, it just sucks. That's about kind of all I can really say. I mean, being at the game last night, uh, I was behind the end zone where he got hurt. So it wasn't a, didn't have a great view of it, but I thought he maybe hyperextended his knee. I definitely, definitely did not look like a torn ACL to me. I'm obviously not a doctor, but I feel like you kind of know sometimes in, in football when there's an ACL injury, and a lot of times it's when you're making a cut or it can even be non-contact. So I was definitely uh, – I was already kind of preparing myself for him to probably be out for maybe the rest of the regular season at least. But, yeah, definitely being a torn ACL, I mean, it sucks not only for Texas but for Jonathan Brooks. I mean, he's a guy that he kind of waited his turn, and he, he, he would always kind of flash in garbage time the last couple of seasons playing behind Bijan Robinson and Rashawn Johnson. And, I mean, he gets his turn this year, and to his credit, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, pressure to replace Bijan Robinson. And the Longhorns really didn't see any sort of drop-off from him. I mean, he was getting close to 1,200 yards. And I think we mentioned in the last couple of shows, I was saying, hey, if Texas can win out, uh, I mean, Jonathan Brooks should maybe get some Heisman uh, consideration and definitely be up there for the Doak Walker Award. But for him being an ACL, uh, for it being an ACL injury, I mean, I just really worry about what his draft future is going to be. I mean, I think I even saw it during the game last night. It was – the Mel Kuyper or Todd McShay or one of them tweeted like Jonathan Brooks running back one. And now, I mean, I don't even know, like, cause the NFL doesn't even value running backs, you know, very highly anymore as it is. And now, I mean, are you going to take a guy that has a torn ACL and he's not even going to be able to go through any, through any draft type of thing. So yeah, I mean, I think Texas is going to struggle without him. I think there's talented backs there, CJ backs or Jaden blue, but it just, it's kind of different whenever Brooks is uh, running. He's just more experienced, and is a, I think he's a pretty special back. So, I mean, look, Texas has, has a lot of talent, and I think they should probably find ways to win the next two weeks. But uh, definitely gets a lot tougher. And, yeah, I mean, just sucks to have an injury like that and really, really bad timing for not only Texas but for just Jonathan Brooks himself. So I guess my main question um, about this injury – is just, I guess, how, how do you think, just or just how different do you think the offense will look? Um, and I know that's a really broad kind of scoping question, but, but what I mean by that is, you know, there have certainly been times this season when a quarterback like when um, Quinn Ewers has been either spot on or just all over the place. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of been hit or miss. It's not necessarily been um, probably as consistent as it should be at times. Because, uh, you know, you look at like the Alabama game week two, the dude was absolutely lights out, dropping the ball in the bucket everywhere he wanted. Um, and then you kind of go back to that Wyoming game, whatnot, week three, or I believe it was week three. Um, you know, he was just kind of hit or miss, kind of missing, you know, five yards, slants across the middle and 
just certain things like that where you'd expect him to hit those routes. So I guess what my question is, um, at that time, you know, when Quinn Ewers may have been hit or miss, um, especially on a missed night, you know, Texas was able to rely a lot more on someone like Jonathan Brooks. Um, he was able to really, uh, really keep that offense going and uh, headed in the right direction, even though their quarterback was having an off night. So I guess with my question now is, um, with your workhorse, Jonathan Brooks, like this out, just how much different do you think the Texas offense will look? And who do you ultimately expect to pick up this slack? Because obviously I know uh, there will be a ton of slack now with him out, but if you had to guess if anyone could maybe just try their best to absolutely pick up where he left off, who do you think that might be? No, it's a great question. I mean, and we're going to talk about it as the week goes on, because um, I think Texas is actually going to lose uh, this week in Iowa State, but I'm really not happy with how Texas has been playing of late, and I don't really understand what their identity is offensively. I don't really know what they're trying to do. And it, But honestly, I do think as good as Jonathan Brooks is, I think Texas is actually a better team when they're throwing the ball a lot, particularly you see in the OU game when you're doing – kind of a lot of quick intermediate passes, RPO game, and you're going high up tempo. That's when Quinn Ewers really gets in a rhythm. You have a ton of weapons like A.D. Mitchell, Xavier Worthy, J.T. Sanders. So even with Brooks gone, there's still a lot of weapons there. So I wonder if Longhorns are going to try and spread the ball around a, a little bit more, maybe rely more on Quinn Ewers, which while he's while he's no perfect quarterback at this point, I mean, Sark has invested a lot into the guy, and he's proven he can do it on the big stage. So I think at a certain point, I mean, you got to just kind of roll with him and let him win you games. And so, yeah, but I mean, I'm just concerned because I've kind of come to the realization that Texas is just what they are this year. They're not going to blow anyone out. And in a tight game, especially on the road, you, you would really like to have your your star running back. You do have C.J. Baxter, who has played well in spurts this year. He was a five-star recruit out of Florida, but he's a freshman. And while he, he has run hard at times, you still kind of see he's still learning. He, he doesn't really have the vision. And he might not ever kind of getting, getting that vision, but he's still kind of finding his way, I think, in college football, getting his feet wet. You have Jaden Blue, who's a talented guy, but he's kind of been in the doghouse for various reasons and had a fumble early in the year, so I don't really know how much Texas trusts him either. You have Keelan Robinson, who's kind of more of a scat back that's mostly used in, like, trickery and motions and a couple flip passes here and there. So there's definitely guys, but I don't think that it's really in Texas' best interest to be running the ball 30 times a game. So, but yeah, honestly, I wish I could tell you more, but I'm really frustrated with how this Texas offense has been running for most of the season, and I don't really know what their identity is. So that's the thing with this Texas offense as well. Um, you know, I remember there have been several times throughout the duration of the season in our episodes that you mentioned um, their most glaring flaw um, has probably been their red zone efficiency. Um, they just, for whatever reason, have just struggled pretty heavily in the red zone. Um, but the thing is, well, I know that I don't want to dive in into like game preview and things like that too much. Um, cause we'll do that in the next episode, but something that's kind of glaring for me a little bit, maybe not just on offense, but just as a whole as a team, um, and your opinion, what do you think it is about Texas? So, um, from what I've seen, I feel like, um, the majority of the games, the Longhorns will just start out like just scorching hot. Like they're just, you know, coming out really well, getting, getting quite a few stops on defense, putting some points up on offense, things like that. Um, for the first half. And then once you get to the second half, it feels like there's just like a drop off. Um, do, do you at least maybe agree with what I'm saying? So I guess what my question is, um, 
what do you think that drop off might like? What do you think the cause of that drop off might be in production in the second half? And clearly, if Texas is going to, you know, meet the true expectations of what um, Longhorn fans and people like that have this season, what will they have to do in order to fix that to truly reach their ultimate potential this season? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't really know if there's anything that that can be fixed this season, and I think a lot of it is. Just simply, I think Sark has a particular vision for this team that he wants them to be. And I kind of think what that vision is, is jump on teams early and then just kind of do what Georgia does, just bleed clock and run teams over. And I just don't think that's the Longhorn strength right now. And maybe Texas doing that against Alabama was one of the worst things that ever happened to this team because, yeah, I mean, it's just – it just kind of seems like in the second half, like things just kind of really slow down. And from being at the TCU game, I mean, in the first half, they they could not cover anyone. And even in the second half, I mean, like I don't think that Quinn Ewers played like a fantastic game, but I thought he, I mean, I, I thought that, that he played pretty well. And even in the second half, I mean, it wasn't like TCU did something that different on defense. There were still guys running wide open at times. It just, I don't know, this offense just feels just kind of clunky at times. Like even when they're moving the ball, sometimes I don't really understand what they're trying to do. And then, you, you have a random big play touchdown and still some short yardage issues. So, and then honestly, I think it's, I think defensively, I've mentioned how the Longhorns have a lot of trouble with zone defense in uh, particular. And I think some teams start to realize that, Hey, let's just drop back and throw the ball and see what happens. And oftentimes it works because the DBs are out of position or can't make a play on the ball. And um, yeah. And I kind of think uh, one thing that I've noticed is, I feel like sometimes Sark and even Pete Krakowski, I think they kind of assume if something worked in the first half that it can't work in the second half because they've already maybe burned it per se. That's just kind of some musings that I have, but I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely just really frustrating when you're kind of killing a team early. And I mean, I'm about 20 against TCU and I see some TCU fan like in the concourse and he's like, Oh, it's over. I'm telling, I'm, you know, I'm telling you this game's not over. Like, I mean, like, trust me, you're always in the game when you're playing Texas. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it actually kind of reminds me of some of Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma teams. I felt like they actually did this a lot, and they would kind of just find ways to win at the end. So I'm definitely happy to be 9-1, and one, but I'm also not one of those Disney Longhorn fans. It's just so happy about everything because I know that there's a lot of things that are not really going too well right now, and I think that's going to bite the Longhorns in the butt pretty soon. Yeah, it will um, absolutely be a ton of fun, I guess, potentially, just to see how the rest of the schedule plays out with these final two weeks coming up. And then, of course, with potential conference championships, bowl games, all that coming up. Um, so I know that you and I said that this is like an emergency press conference and it would be kind of short, but we actually ended up going to about 40 minutes on this episode. So this is pretty much a full-length episode. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can talk ball for hours. We can. Um so that we pretty much just covered our, our two main points of our emergency press conference style show. Um, is there anything else on your mind that we need to discuss before we wrap up and get out of here? I think that's about it. All right, then I, uh, I I've had my tangent about my biggest college football news. I've had probably in at least the past six years. So, um, you know, with that being said, Thank you very much for tuning into this episode. We really appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., you always know where to reach us on socials. Um, 
yeah, that's pretty much all I got to say. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we will be back to our regular scheduled programming um, this upcoming week. So we will talk to you all then. Thank you all.